good morning. I greet you in the name of the Lord Christ. It is good to be together. And I thank uh, Brother Zuck for the uh, kind invitation to bring God's word to you again. This morning I'll be reading from Titus chapter 2. Please join me in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul is just making some doctrinal statements, and now he's leading to the obvious application of that. That's what we'll be considering this morning and what I've simply described as godly living. When we consider the Thanksgiving season that we're approaching now, what greater demonstration of thanksgiving to God than living in a manner that is pleasing to him? We find that we, when we render to God that which he is due, we find our greatest joy. Has that been your experience? It's certainly true. Let's go ahead and read our text and then we'll we'll proceed from there. Titus chapter two, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing Of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Michael maintained a religiously, rigorously religious life. In the Roman church, though little is known about his early days, at some point at about the age of 34, he began reading the Pauline epistles and was introduced to evangelical teaching, which brought about his conversion. I am, of course, speaking about Michael Sattler, an early Anabaptist leader of the Swiss Brethren. Familiar with this name? Two short years later, he called the brothers together to meet at Schlatten am Randen to consider the violent response against the Anabaptists from all fronts. These were not good days to be an evangelical. He helped craft what we know today as the Schleitheim Confession of 1527. At this meeting, he had this to say. One of the first things I learned when I began weaving was that it takes only one bad thread, only one poorly mixed dye to destroy an entire cloth. Like my brother Wilhelm, I'm afraid. I fear for those who are imprisoned. I weep for those who have died and will die as Anabaptists. But I fear even more the consequences of compromise. For if we allow the power of this world to be threaded into the fabric of Christ's church, all of us, all of us, we've seen the results. Compassion turns to pride, charity to greed. Truth becomes fabrication, salvation, citizenship, peace, oppression, and faith in God becomes faith in popes and princes and kings. We must not imitate the world, but Christ in all things, even if we are called to the gallows or the grave. When I made this mistake, it cost me only four guilders, 
If we deceive ourselves now, the price will be eternal. Why do I read this? For this reason, Sattler understood the consequence of compromise, moral, cultural, biblical, and that is forfeiture of Christ. The New Testament goes out of its way to emphasize believers call to holy, godly living. And just as in Sattler's day, we too dare not yield an inch to the world's temptation for us to give in a little here, a little there. Hebrews 2.3 rightly and soberly asks, how shall we escape if we neglect or show no concern for such a great salvation? In our text this morning, we see that God's grace is the foundation for the godly living, such as was described in verses 1 through 10. This foundation is fundamentally a gospel foundation. So you see, again, the gospel is not simply for unbelievers. It's every bit as much for Christ's church. The same grace that saves us instructs us. Answering Francis Schaeffer's question for us, how should we then live? This new way of life is the natural overflow and expression of being a new creation, as Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5.17. You'll recall, for if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And elsewhere, Paul notes that inasmuch as God's glory has fundamentally changed us, we too might walk in newness of life. A common refrain we often hear at a believer's baptism. That same grace fuels godly, holy living, as we'll see shortly. So we begin in verse 11. Verse 11, grace and salvation. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Well, this phrase, grace of God, refers to the unmerited favor that God gives to undeserving sinners. I recall in Sunday school long ago, I was... Uh, The distinction was made clear to me between grace and mercy. This may be something similar to what you've heard. Grace was described to me as receiving what we do not deserve, where mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. That's helpful. Well, this grace of God is clearly unmerited favor. We have no claim on it. God set his favor upon us and has demonstrated that grace, among many other ways, through drawing us to Christ. This grace causes a transformation otherwise impossible. Mounts has said that the grace is a one word summary of God's saving act in Christ given freely to sinners who believe. Profoundly simple, isn't it? Well, this appearance points clearly to Jesus and reminds us of first John. One, one and two, which tells us. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. I'll continue. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you, too, may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our or your joy may be complete. Amen.
Another pastor, theologian, has noted that salvation by the grace of God has appeared for all people. That is, he has made this salvation known for all the world to see. The lids blown off, the secrets out. Everybody can see it, observe it, handle it, if you will. It's not reserved for any one people group. It's out there for all to see. There's no mystery to Christianity. It's made completely open and visible for all. In other words, God's salvation of sinners is not limited to an ethnic group. Paul makes this profoundly clear in Galatians 3. Join me there for a moment, please. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What we see happening in verse 11 of our text is this, that godly, righteous, holy living is the necessary consequence of experiencing God's grace and salvation. It's to be expected. It's the natural result. You've received Christ as Lord and Savior. He is your king. He has cleansed your heart, changed you, given you a warm heart with affection for him. The natural result is to praise him, not simply with song or lip service, if you will, but with our life. If we don't add Christ to our life, he becomes our life. He is life. Our culture is one which compartmentalizes everything. Have you noticed We have our Sunday morning church box. We have our Monday through Friday work box. We have our family box, our pleasure box, what have you. We compartmentalize it. That's Greek thinking. That's foreign to scripture. In the Bible, there's one box and all of life is in it. For me to live is Christ, Paul says, and that makes perfect sense from a one box mentality. All of life is holy. Do we treat it as such or not is more the question. Speaking to this, MacArthur has said grace is not a one time event in the Christian experience. We stand in grace. The entire Christian life is driven and empowered by grace. It isn't just an act of grace when we confess Christ. We receive him as our Lord and Savior. Our whole life experience in Christ is one of Walking in grace. We need God's grace for everything. We are a needy people. We are not fragile. Or he is not fragile. We are. We need him for everything because we are fragile from from birth to death. We're on life support, you might say. Well, summarizing this, Ortland says that the grace and mercy of God is so bound up with and manifested in Jesus himself that to speak of Christ even appearing is to speak of grace appearing. Significant. Notice verse 12, living otherworldly. Well, this grace which appeared in the person of Christ and brought salvation trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Well, training us looks like this. Salvation is transforming. You'll recall, we noted moments ago from 2 Corinthians, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. 
that that imagery there is one of a brand new species of being. We didn't receive a spiritual facelift. We were completely recreated. That's what the word is a reference to. A completely new species of being. Everything is new for us in Christ. The way we think, the way we believe, the way we live, what we value. It's all new because now we have the Holy Spirit within us who informs us. And we have this nice, tidy, sterile word that we like to use called conviction, which is God's holy presence within us. Who makes it clear when we're engaging in something or thinking something or saying something that is not in harmony with God and his word. Well, now that God's work of regeneration or giving of new life has occurred in us. We do cooperate with him in our continuing sanctification, uh, a 50 cent word, meaning our, our growth in holiness to be sanctified is to be holy from the word sanctus, meaning holy. Namely, this is through what we sometimes refer as spiritual disciplines. Bible intake, prayer, this, these are a list from Don Whitney. Prayer, worship, evangelism, serving, stewardship. Fasting, silence and solitude, journaling, learning. These are all activities that we see exampled in Scripture. And when we engage in these activities, we are distancing ourselves from the empty, dead in street pursuits of this world and are engaging God through his word, which purifies the mind, renews the mind, as Paul calls us to in Romans 12. It grows us up. If we were to witness one of our young people not growing, it would disturb us. It's expected that young people will grow at an alarming rate. Actually, try keeping them in pants. It, it would concern us, would it not, if they weren't growing? It is expected. It's normal. It's natural that children are going to grow, not just in knowledge, but in size. So, too, it is with God's people. It's naturally expected we're going to grow. We're going to grow up. And it should trouble us when one doesn't. It's not normal for us to remain static, if you will, or to remain the same as if we are in a perpetual spiritual kindergarten the entirety of our lives. That's not normal. We're expected to grow. And when we engage in these spiritual disciplines, that aids in our growth. Just as a teacher does not ask the students, what do you want to learn? Rather, the teacher teaches the students what the students need to learn. So, too, God doesn't ask us whether we wish to grow. He doesn't ask us what we want to learn. He gives us through his word and spirit what we need. And as grateful people, we submit to his leadership and we seek that which he has delivered by his kind hand. The purpose of this discipline is to instruct us how to live our lives marked by continual repentance and faith. In Sunday school this morning, we were reminded that there are some of the mind that they no longer have sin to account for. Chew on that for a moment. No more sin. That must be nice. That's not my experience. How about you? It's it's odd because, as was also noted, we see in first John 
verse eight, first John chapter one, verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, see, the assumption there is that we have sins to be confessed and we do. We do, whether for doing the wrong thing or neglecting to do the right. Sin is sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Since we are still in the flesh, we're still on this side of glory. We still have sin to be reckoned with. This process will necessarily include abandoning sinful words and deeds. And this, brothers and sisters, is a lifelong process. Or to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, we see. Also in verse 12, grace but from God not only prohibits sin, grace both enables and commands godly virtues. See, God doesn't simply say stop, quit, don't, leave it. He doesn't just prohibit the wrong. He gives us the right to pursue. He holds forth those virtuous things. Notice 2 Corinthians Four six. Second Corinthians four six. Everything outside of Christ pales in comparison. I've heard it said that every time we sin, this is the sobering part. At the moment we sin, regardless of what it is, at that very moment we crave sin more than we do Christ. That should grieve that in that moment, whatever it is I'm trading righteous behavior for, I want that that wickedness that caused Christ's death, Christ's death more than I want Christ himself. Well, we see in Second Corinthians four, six, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, there's painted before us the most magnificent picture. What can we conceive of is more gloriously beautiful than the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? At our best moment, that should inspire us. But in our weakest moment, that should drive us to Christ. But that reveals to us that sin does remain because we still crave it. In our strongest moment, we would probably confess that we we crave sin far more than we want to. But we still want it. Well, Beaky has said this. This is the posture we must take. A posture of prayer. Confession. Of looking to Jesus. It sounds so simple, but it's so significant. Prayer. This often untapped powerhouse made available to us by God. Look, God is sovereign, isn't he? He's going to do what he wants and he has full right to do so. He's created all that is and before anything was, God is. He owns it all. He has full claim to authority and power. And yet, mysteriously, he invites us to participate with him. He calls on us to pray. 
to participate with him. That's marvelous, isn't it? God's going to affect salvation if he wants to. And yet we're called to pray. And don't we? Dear Lord, would you please save so and so? Would you please reveal yourself to them? Give them faith that they would believe. Have you ever pleaded for someone's salvation? Begging that God would intervene. We understand fundamentally that it is God who brings about that change, not us. And yet he invites us to pray. What a marvelous partnership we have with the Lord. We submit to him, much as even Christ did when he was in the garden. You recall the moment. Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. There's submission to learn from. God the Father knows best. Upright here. We're to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright. This is simply a word elsewhere translated as righteous. In that moment of salvation, as was noted earlier, God imputes to us or puts into us the righteousness of Christ. And he had to. For we read elsewhere that all of our works of righteousness are like filthy rags. They're, they're worthless. What do we have to bring to God but everything that is completely stained by sin? We need what we do not have. And he's provided everything we could not. And he declared us because of Jesus Christ's perfect obedience, passively and actively through his life. He blesses us with the righteousness of Christ. That is why we can stand before God and not be destroyed. And so he declares us to be justified or righteous. That's our position. Now we practice that righteousness. That's what we're called to. Romans 5.1 describes this for us. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that Christ is the object of our faith. He's the basis for our salvation. That is, he's the basis for our acceptance with God. It is through the means of faith that we are declared justified. See, we dare not put our confidence in a prayer that we verbalize to God. Of course, we urge people pray. Confess your sins. Appeal to God. Dear Lord, Son of David, forgive me, for I have sinned. Yes, pray. Pray without ceasing. But it's not the prayer that saves. It's not the tears that save. Though we should weep tears of remorse over having through our life, through our, our words, our thoughts, our attitudes, we've spit in the face of Christ. We should grieve and we should weep. But that doesn't save us. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. That is why we appeal to him. 
If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's gospel truth there. Confess Christ. Believe Christ. You'll be saved. We see also verse 9 there in Romans 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now that we have been declared by God to be righteous in Christ, now we're to live in light of it. When we see this in Galatians 5, 25. Galatians 5.25 If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And also, 1 John 1, 5-8. Back where we were earlier, but we'll read, we'll read it more in context. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we had no sin, there would be no reason for Christ to have come in the flesh to begin with. Much less die. Because if we have no sin, then what did he die for? Most certainly not for himself. He had no need for cleansing or forgiveness of sin. We read elsewhere that there is no sin in him. There's no deceit in his mouth. No guile. He has no need for that. We do. Godly here in our back in our text refers to reverence and respect towards God. This extends in and outside our church life. We know that when we gather each Lord's Day, we do for corporate worship or the body gathering together. Paul talks in Corinthians saying when you come together, referenced you, the members of this local church, when you come together, that's the corporate worship aspect. There's also the individual And we most certainly do pray that we are rendering to God acceptable worship this morning. And that was, of course, mentioned this morning in prayer. And I'm grateful for that emphasis there, that desire that what we bring to God be pleasing in his sight. For we know that when we give him what he deserves, we leave refreshed. But a life of worship extends well beyond the the walls of our church. All week long is expected to be a lifestyle of worship as we ramp up for Sunday morning. This is to be the overflow of a week full of worship. You might say the pinnacle of a week of worship of God. And when we come together, we're both preparing for the coming week, but also this is the overflow, that that cup that runneth over. From what we've done all week, we cannot simply just skate through the week and then wait for Sunday and expect that we're going to flip on the switch. Okay, we're going to worship now. It doesn't work that way. It it can't work that way. There is a very real sense in that you get out of it what you put into it. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
we're told. Notice verses 13 and 14 in our text. The object of our great hope. Waiting for our blessed hope. Which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Waiting here is modifying the word live in verse 12. We patiently endure because we have lasting assured expectation that God will do exactly as he has promised. Paul talks about his patiently enduring suffering for the sake of God's elect. He's going through a lot for the sake of God's people. Because he has the hope and not just a hope. And I hope we have a warm day tomorrow. There's nothing that's going to change tomorrow from my point of view. But we have an assurance that may be a better word for our our lasting hope. This is a hope based on the one who gives it, and that is the Lord God who cannot renege on on a promise. Our great hope is not heaven itself, but rather the Lord Christ of heaven himself who makes heaven glorious. There are far too many who would be happy for the for, for the peace of a heaven without the God who made it. They're happy for heaven without the Christ who is Lord of it, the radiance of it. But Christ is our great treasure. Just as in prayer, it's not the outcome of our prayer that's the point. It's the Lord God who delivers. God is the great treasure of prayer. Not getting what I'm asking for. The great treasure of heaven is Christ himself. That Jesus would agree with the Father and the Spirit in eternity past. And fulfill at the appointed time his goal of glorifying the father by actively living a life of perfect obedience to him and keeping his law and passively laying down his life as an atonement for people's sins only to raise himself up again afterwards gives us supremely sufficient confidence that he will complete that mission by bringing his people home at the father's appointed time. It's a complete success. It's inevitable. Maurice Roberts has noted, as Christians, we yearn to be with Christ in heaven. Christ is the object of our desire, for to be with Christ is to be with God. Heaven is where we will experience the glorious presence, love and comfort of God in Christ. And that is precisely what Jesus accomplishes for us by interceding for us moment by moment. God hears us pray because of Jesus Christ interceding for us. As if Christ has got us by the hand and saying, there with me, there with me. And so God gives us an audience moment by moment. We need Christ. It's not like way back when we we prayed for confession of sin, repentance of it and embracing of Jesus Christ, that suddenly that sealed the deal. And now that's it. We need Christ every single moment. We're a needy people, and it's just as well. Notice Hebrews 7, 25 through 27. Hebrews 7, 25 through 27. 
speaking of this great Christ who is our access to the Father. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. He doesn't bring us most of the way and then we're responsible for the rest of it. No, he saves to the uttermost once for all time, completely. Those who draw near to God through him. Pause. You'll rec- you'll remember from John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the father except through me. Here's what the same thing we're seeing here. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like these are those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Such is our high priest. What does a high priest do? But he makes sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people and himself. But Christ is different in the sense that he had no sins of his own to be covered, to be atoned for. But we do. And also, unlike human priests who had to sacrifice regularly, that blood flowed. Cannot imagine such a grim scene. But Christ, in comparison, in radical comparison, sacrificed himself once for all time for us. Amen. Yes. This, this realization should fuel our humility or demut in us. This calls for simplicity, don't you think, though? Simplicity of living before the Lord Christ. Begg notes that humility means recognizing and believing that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. It means acknowledging that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing as we ought. It means longing to be filled with God's word and God's spirit. So we say then with the psalmist in Psalm 84. (laughs) Psalm 84, 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And yet when we sin, are we not telling God we would rather have a day in the tents of the wicked? That's sobering. Because at our better moment before the Lord, we know better. Better a day in the Lord's courts than a thousand elsewhere that this world has to offer. J.I. Packer concludes with this. What now of us? Does zeal for the house of God and the cause of God eat us up? Possess us? Consume us? Can we say with the master, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work? What sort of discipleship is ours? Have we not need to pray with that flaming evangelist, George Whitfield, a man as humble as he was zealous? Lord, help me to begin to begin. For love awakens love in return and love once awakened desires to give pleasure and the revealed will of God 
is that those who have received grace should henceforth give themselves to good works. Well, if A.W. Tozer was right, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, then what is our life's testimony declaring to others? To God. In what ways, looking to our text today in verse 10, in what ways does your life adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior? And why might it matter? Has the grace of God appeared to you savingly and so have been transformed by it? If so, your life will testify to it. Do you recognize that testimony? Might others? Jesus declared in Matthew 7, 17 and 18, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. What of you? Are you a spiritually diseased tree? Then repent and believe on the Lord Christ and be saved today. If you're not a sinner, you have a good argument to stay away from Jesus. But if you are a sinner, you have no excuse. Come to him. Today is the day of salvation. Are you perhaps, though, a healthy tree spiritually? Then trust in the Lord's word. Cling to Christ and live righteously in a very unrighteous culture. For according to Peter, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Gaze at the Son of God. Allow his brightness to affect how you see everything else. That's the secret for times like these. May we daily, continually, proclaim his magnificent excellencies in word, song, prayer, lesson, sermon, encouragement, exhortation, in every way humanly possible. Let's pray. Father, you are kind and good, merciful, gracious and patient. And we thank you. What do we have to be thankful for? But a great many things. And we thank you that though undeserving, you love us. You care for us. That in Christ we need for nothing. Father, change us. Conform us to Christ. Make us to be fit vessels for the this great salvation that you have lavished on us in, the, in Christ. As a church, grow us up together to be useful to you, encouraging and exhorting for one another that even this local church, Lord, would be a beacon of your saving light to the community around them. Work your grace among us. May your spirit sweep through this place Crushing pride where necessary, building up the weak where necessary, and restoring to each one the joy of your salvation, for your glory, for our satisfaction, and for your great name's sake. In Christ's name, amen.